Welcome to Slaughterhouse Stories. I hope you enjoy the stories I have for you tonight. Hello, to all you things that go bump in the night. Hello to all you humans as well. Welcome to the show that brings you creepypastas, short scary stories, and dark horror-themed poetry from all across the world. This is the Slaughterhouse Stories Podcast, Episode 50, Year End. I am your host and narrator, Ghost Train, telling you to lock your doors, get under your blanket, and keep the lights on. If you want to discuss all things spooky with me, you can find the links to my social media accounts in the show notes. And if you'd like to write in and have your email read on the show, email slaughterhousestoriespodcast at gmail.com with creepypasta requests, stories you've written, or your own real-life paranormal encounters. Before we get to tonight's first story, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you're enjoying the show, please head over and leave a review through iTunes and help spread the word to your friends, family, the narrator coming for your soul, whomever. Tell them, be a listener, not a victim. Now, let's get spooky. Tonight will be the longest episode I've ever done. Before next week's all Christmas episode, I thought tonight I could do a big end of the year episode. So tonight will feature 10 of my favorite stories from this year. Now let's get this episode started with the first story of the night. This one, about a killer who is a very particular type of victim and leaves each victim missing very particular parts. With a series of murders that started in 1962, the murder was unknown for 45 years. Settle in, get comfortable for a long show, and enjoy the I Love You Murders. I'm here to talk about a topic I've taken interest to lately that never had gotten a lot of media coverage despite how interesting it is. The I Love You Murders. They were a series of five murders. These took place in a large city in Ohio throughout 1962. The first in the chain of murders took place on January 20th. A woman had been found in an alleyway in the most sketchy part of town. She had been scalped. Not a single strand of her long, dark hair had been left behind. It was a very odd MO. The cause of death was determined to be a stab wound in the back that pierced right through her heart. The only clue left to go on was a note stuffed into her mouth that read, I loved her. Since there wasn't anything else to go on, it turned into a cold case. On March 3rd, the next body was found. A woman had been beaten to death and was sprawled out across an old set of railroad tracks not far from downtown. She had been beaten and looked very disfigured. She had definitely put up a fight in an attempt to get away. She was missing nails and her head had been slammed against the track several times leaving her skull cracked. The most disturbing part of this murder is the fact that her crystal blue eyes had been gouged out while she was still alive. There was a note stuffed into her mouth that read, I loved her, just like the previous murder. In mid-July, 
A few teenagers had broken into an abandoned house to drink, but their party had been cut short. When they found the body of a woman who had been slaughtered in the back room, her heart had been literally chiseled from her chest, which was also the cause of death. Yet again, the now infamous note had been left in the mouth of the victim, but still, nothing to go on. Four months later, the police were starting to think the killings had finally died down, but their wishful thinking had been put to an immediate halt when the next victim had been found. Two teenagers broke into an abandoned factory and found the body of a woman whose face had been carved off. She'd also been raped and stabbed several times in the abdomen. She had died from the blood loss, but same as always, nothing but the note was left behind. The fifth and final murder took place on December 1st. This murder wasn't like the others though. The only things that had been left behind were two green eyes, red hair, a heart, the woman's face, and that same unsettling note. In 2007, the killer was finally found, but not exactly caught. The now old man had been found dead of natural causes in his home. Months later, while his children were clearing out the house, in the process to put it on the market, they found an old wardrobe with a padlock on it. Thinking it would be filled with nothing more than guns or paperwork, they carelessly cut the lock. The three of his now fully grown children stood around in awe of what they had found. A perfectly preserved woman. Although, it was more like bits and pieces sewn together to make a woman. Taped to the doors on the inside of the wardrobe were pictures that looked to be of their father in his teenage years. With a gorgeous woman of about the same age, she had long dark hair and bright blue eyes, just like the woman in front of them, but it didn't exactly look like the same woman. Some features were close, but not dead on. At closer examination, the words, I love you, were cut into her lips. The poor old man had just been missing the love of his life and tried to recreate her. It's very romantic. Or sick. Or both. Let's just all be glad he terrorized the humans for so long. Now, while we all dry our eyes from such a sweet story, I will move us to story number two of the night. This one, I bet a poor kindergarten teacher who's just trying to make his way home, but he finds himself stalked. Hunted. Now, he has to run for his life through the fog. Will he survive? Probably not. But let's find out together as you listen to Demons in the Fog. It was the early evening and I walked home from work as a kindergarten teacher, as I usually did. I cut through the large cemetery where most of my family was buried and I decided to go pay my respects, as I did from time to time. An odd fog began to roll in as the sun set, but I took no heed of it. I instead looked for the specific oak tree where my family plot was. The fog was growing thicker, so I decided to head home and come by tomorrow. I began running into a problem. I didn't know where I was in the fog. Graves would only appear in front of me, just short of me running into them. I became startled as a statue of an angel peered in front of me. The angel stared upwards, with its arms raised, as if to take a soul to heaven. The name and date appeared to be scratched out by a chisel or something, but I could still make out the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. As I read it, I heard what sounded like a child whispering the prayer. I looked around, but couldn't see very far. I looked back at the statue, and the angel was staring down at me with a glare. I was startled, but I just brushed it off as a lapse in memory. 
I continued through the cemetery, growing increasingly worried and out of touch with time. A large shadow appeared in front of me. I approached it slowly. It was a tree, but not like the one I sought earlier. Its branches began shaking, as if something was moving within the leaves. I couldn't make anything out, and assumed it was a squirrel or cat. But then, out of the quiet fog, I once more heard the sound of a child saying the Lord's Prayer. I called out, but there was no response. I waited for a moment. Then the voices of more children began saying the Lord's Prayer. I screamed for someone to help, but I only heard the children as I began to see shapes move in the fog. It felt as if a thousand eyes were upon me as more and more children joined in the chant. None seen. All heard. Then all at once the voices stopped. The fog felt hollow and empty. The brief silence was shattered by a deep demonic voice, repeating the verse in a sinister and mocking tone. I ran like I had never run before. The air quickly grew bitter and cold. The demonic one began shouting in Latin. I kept looking back over my shoulder, but all I could see were the shifting shapes of the fog. How long had I been running? The cemetery is big, but nowhere near this distance. I fell to my knees and began to sob in terror. What was going on? Shadows took form within the fog and began approaching me. Terror washed over me as I tried to muster breath for a scream, but I was too winded from the run. Shadowy arms shot up from the mist and grabbed hold of my arms. I struggled as they pulled my sleeves back. They began to carve Latin inscriptions into my flesh. I screamed in agony. I looked at the bleeding words they began to ignite within my flesh. My arms were up in a flash of white fire. I was numb to everything as I looked at the words written in the smoldering skin. It was in English now. Words such as die, gone, sorry, abandoned, and eternal appeared in crimson against the blackened flesh. I ripped from their hold and took off faster than before, the demons laughing all the while. I sprinted for a moment and looked over my shoulder, and then forward again, just in time to hit a tree. I woke up as the sun rose, under the tree I searched for the other evening. I looked at my arms. They were normal. I looked towards my family plot to see a little boy setting a flower down as his parents watched. I walked over to ask who they knew, but as I got close, I noticed it was my name on the grave. The date said I died over two years ago. My heart sank as the memories flooded back and watched as one of my former students placed a flower at his teacher's grave. Am I in hell? Welcome to Hell, human. I wonder what you did to deserve this punishment. Whatever it was, I'm glad you're suffering. Enjoy the endless loop. Enjoy being hunted, stalked, and clawed for the rest of eternity. Now while he endures his much-deserved torture, allow me to move things to story number three. This story, written by a spooky motherfucker, me, about a doll who's endured such horrors as she's coldly been sent from home to home. What has happened to the poor doll named Julia? Ignore the tiny footsteps you hear and enjoy fresh new start. Julia thought everything was going to be okay. She thought she was going to be okay. She thought the painful memories and the torment of the past wouldn't follow her. That this fresh new start meant a happy ending for her, finally. She missed her old home so much most days. The laughter and the playing. 
the love she felt from her mommy and grandma. Her uncles would play tricks on her mommy, using her. Sure, it could come off as a little mean, but some of them were really quite funny. Like when they hid her so that mommy couldn't find her for an hour or so. Her mommy and grandma were so angry at Uncle Chris, but when mommy finally found her, she got the tightest hug she'd ever gotten from her, and that made the trick worth it. But the things that happened still haunt her. The clothes may be gone, and they may have washed the blood from her innocent-looking face. But the memories still stain her in ways that can never be cleaned off. Have you ever had to watch your entire family, everyone you love, killed in brutal and horrific ways? No? Then how could you hope to understand Julia, and how much she hoped everything was going to be better now? But it wasn't. It was only temporary. Once again, Julia's new family took her in for a few years. And then the talk started. Mary's getting a bit older. Perhaps it's time for her to get rid of all her dolls. All of her dolls? What? No. Not again. Julia was as angry as ever. Why? Why was yet another family going to just throw her away after they brought her home and promised to love her forever? Why? This was the fourth family, and it didn't get any easier. The look on Granny's face as she opened her eyes to find Julia, tiny, innocent-looking Julia, in her purple dress with pink and white flowers, and an orchid in her hair, holding the claw side of a hammer point down. Granny was too shocked to move, and suddenly, Julia's pretty dress, her perfect skin, and her pretty auburn hair was splashed with the deep crimson of Granny's blood as she brought the hammer down over and over and over again. She didn't expect to hear Mary gasp behind her. She thought she'd have time to be quiet. But Mary took off running, and Julie was running quickly behind her. Mary was terrified, and that fear is what led to her tripping and falling down the steps, banging her head and knocking herself out when she reached the bottom. Mary awoke to find herself tied to a chair in the living room. She didn't understand how Julie lifted a 16-year-old girl into the chair. She didn't understand any of this. Julia is just a doll. A stupid, silly, ragged doll. But that didn't stop Julia from screaming at her. That she shouldn't have been so willing to leave her. That she said she'd love her forever. She was nothing but a liar, like all the other ones. Fine. If this is the way you want it to be, then Julia would treat you like the rest. You could have been friends forever, she says, as she pours gasoline over Mary. You could have given her to your daughter, and so on and so on for 50 or 100 years. But no, you'd rather throw her away, your oldest friend. Well, Julia said, have it your way. Someone else will take me in. And with that, Julia struck a match and threw it onto Mary. The only thing louder than the fire engine sirens were the screams for the first few moments and the sound of laughter. The fire department put out the fire, but it was too late. It was obvious people were murdered but they couldn't find much evidence. All they found was an innocent-looking doll, splattered with blood, but otherwise unharmed. Alex Florio was just a rookie with the fire department, but still, he knew he shouldn't be removing evidence. This doll, Julia, he decided to call it, though he didn't know why. He needed to go with the police to help solve the case, but he couldn't help it. With a good washing, this doll would be the perfect gift for his daughter. Poor Julia just wants to be loved and kept safe. 
but you humans keep wanting to throw her away. So clearly, these humans got what they deserved. Hopefully, the new family will hold on to her and give her the home she deserves. Otherwise, they can be victims as well. To see what little Julia looks like, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Iced underscore Demon and Instagram at Slaughter underscore House underscore Stories. The Julia dolls created by Buried Alive Dolls. Check out their Etsy page and get your own custom-made creepy doll. But let's leave Julia to her new family and get to the fourth story of the night. This one is about a man who has a love for the ocean. Knowing about the monsters that lived in the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean and wanting more than anything to join them. Will he get his wish? Hold back your fear of the open ocean and try to relax while you listen to Abyssal Gigantism. All my life, I've been fascinated by the deep sea. 200 meters down, could not care less. 1,000 meters down, yawn. No, deep in the sea. Somewhere around 2,000 meters below sea level, the abysmal zone begins. The creatures that live there will never see the sunlight. The only light they can see is that which they make themselves. Down there, in the dark, that's where the monsters are. I always had an affinity for Lovecraftian creatures, your Cthulhu and your Azathoth, but in my heart, I knew those were fiction. No, the real monsters in the world are squid larger than a building with a beak that could shatter a Humvee, legions of shrimp grown to the size of small cars. Even in captivity, a goldfish will inevitably grow as large as this little bowl can support. So does every other fish in the sea. We could never really know how big they get. We know more about the moon than we do about the ocean floor and the creatures that live there. That mystery, that was what drove me through my undergrad, through my graduate program, and eventually through my postgrad work in some of the foremost marine biology departments in the Pacific, before I ended up working with a well-known research institute based out of Guam. All of this led up to today's expedition. Today, I would finally see my Xanadu, the Mariana Trench. It reaches almost seven miles underwater, straight down, over 11,000 meters. Somewhere in the bottom of that trench, there's incredible beasts of untold size, proportions, and beauty. Over the course of my career, I established myself as a steadfast, trustworthy academic. No life beyond my work. But that just let me focus on my goal. Months ago, I palmed the keys to the storeroom and the Yemma, the department's ancient expeditionary boat. I made a copy and returned the keys the next day. If anyone noticed, they said nothing. Over the course of the next few months, supplies were in the lab start to go missing. A wetsuit here, a rebreather there. No one would dare suspect a dedicated, beleaguered researcher. Maybe some poor research assistant caught hell. Not my problem. I stayed late tonight. Told my colleagues I just needed to wait for some results back. Then I promise I'll get a good night's rest. They thought my nervous shake was from my caffeine habit. Really, I just couldn't wait for them to leave. When the last man left, I waited 30 minutes, then grabbed my stash of illicit goods and made for the Emma. You don't get through 10 years of work in marine biology without knowing your way around a boat. I eased myself into the cold metal seat of the heavy pilot's chair and maneuvered the Emma smoothly out of its dock and off of campus. I knew there would be no alarms and no reason to watch for me. Still, I turned every light on the small research vessel off 
until I was well out of sight of land. I had a journey of hundreds of miles ahead of me, and I knew I couldn't take any chances. I couldn't lose so much work. The boat was only 25 feet or so long. It wasn't built for long journeys like this, across unpredictable oceans, but I knew she had more than enough gas for one last voyage. By the time I reached the ping on my ship's navigation, the sun was beginning to peek out of the horizon to the east. I knew my department would realize Emma was missing, but I couldn't make myself care. Soon they would also realize I hadn't made any substantial progress in half a year. I always did just enough, looked just busy enough, that no one would look twice. And who could question me? Now that I think of it, I don't know that I could remember a single one of their faces. None of that matters now. The only thing that does is where I am. I looked down into the dark blue ocean. It lays in wait, aching to be seen, to be felt. The Mariana Trench has been calling me all of my life, and now I can finally answer the call. I can hardly zip the wetsuit up. My hands are shaking so bad. And for my final trick, I wrenched the pilot's chair free. With a length of chain I'd stashed away, I tie it to my leg. I fitted my mask with a transmitter, feeding my words directly into this document. Once the transmission ends, this will end up in the hands of someone I trust. That's you, I guess. And like that, my preparations are complete. My life's work. It's all happening now. With one final glance towards my sweet Emma and the sky behind her, I close my eyes. I hold the chair close and ease myself backwards into the deep. It's cold, but I don't mind. I think I can feel the pressure changing, welcoming me home. The embrace of my great old one. Down. 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 I only wish that I could see more. I think that's... My mask cracking. I feel it coming. Soon, I will meet the ocean, face to face. When the darkness rushes in to meet me, we will become one. And I will grow larger than you will ever know. I will become another beautiful beautiful monster. Well, he certainly spent a lot of time planning out each step. It makes you wonder, did he join them? Did he himself become a monster? Or did the ocean crush him and the monsters feast on him? I think either way he was happy, and either way works for me as well. Speaking of monsters, that makes me think of our fifth story, written by Kamen Rider Chrome, about an old Native American legend that finds two brothers just trying to enjoy a camping trip together. Sadly for them, their trip took them into places they never should have been, and a creature is waiting for them, more than happy to make them pay for it. Don't answer your door, even if you recognize the visitor. Settle in, relax, and enjoy skinwalkers as legend goes to become a skinwalker you must attain priesthood and then kill a member of your own family then and only then can you gain the powers to shapeshift then and only then are you a true skinwalker according to local folklore a man had done just that. An Indian priest had supposedly not only killed one, but five immediate members of his family. They never caught this man, 
he disappeared into the woods, never to be seen again. When Jason and Alex set out for their camping trip, they knew all the old legends, and they laughed at the idea that a skinwalker would come get them if they trespassed on the old Indian land, the same land that the supposed murders had taken place. And why should they believe the legends? A man becoming a beast was probably the most ridiculous imaginable. Jason and Alex were brothers. They spent their entire lives together until Jason had gotten married. Then Jason moved away and started a family, but not Alex. Alex stayed in their hometown, tending to their parents, making an honest living off the land and tried to be a good person. And Alex had succeeded at this. He hadn't broken a commandment in years and was well on his way, well, in his own mind, to heaven. Three years had passed between the last get-together, and three more would have passed if Alex did insist on a camping trip. But insist he did, and there they were. It was getting dark, and the two of them were laying out under the stars. They were deep in the woods, and they had no GPS or maps. But they knew the path back from where they were. They had gone there as kids. Never know. Huh? Alex replied. He only caught bits and pieces sometimes. We could never let Dad know, Jason reiterated. Know what? That we stayed on the old Indian land past dark. We promised him his kids, and I wouldn't want to upset him now. He's getting pretty close to dead, and if we started an argument now, we may not resolve it in time for her. You know, just don't tell him or Ma, okay? Okay, no problem. They both were silent for a while, until up creeped a small raccoon. Well, look at that, Alex called as he pointed towards the critter. It stared at them for several minutes, not moving, not attempting to flee when they motioned towards it. It stayed almost perfectly still, and then finally it left. Minutes later came a deer. Again, the creature stayed and watched them. Unwavering determination glared in its eyes. For about two hours, the duo was kept awake as every animal they knew to live in the forest and some that were almost sure didn't inhabit the area, came to gaze upon them. The final animal was a gray wolf. It slowly moved towards them, and when it was five feet away, it stopped. Don't move. Don't panic. I'll go, Jason reassured Alex. The wolf slowly stood up onto its hind legs, and then its limbs began to contort and pop. Horror slid over Jason and Alex's faces as they saw the fur tear open, revealing light brown flesh underneath. Finally, they gazed upon what looked like a man with a wolf hand. The skull of the wolf split open like a melon, the fur sliding off it, the bone chipping and falling like a fragile eggshell, and in its place slowly grew out the head of a man. The man now stood before the paralyzed brothers. They couldn't seem to move. This is my land, said the man with an almost supernatural smile. Now, now, mister, I'm going to have to ask you to go. Alex drowned off. Get the fuck away from us, Jason said as fiercely as he could. The man began to laugh, and as he continued to laugh, the pitch changed. It grew deeper, from that of a man to that of a demon, and soon it sounded as if Satan himself was bellowing out at them. The man's skin grew black as coal, and his eyes yellow like a cat's. His demonic laughter echoed through the forest as he drew closer and closer. The brothers being unarmed, they had no choice other than to flee, and that's what they did. 
They ran as fast as they could, except instead of out to their cars, they were cornered into running deeper into the woods. For hours, they seemed to play cat and mouse. Several times, animals they passed would burst open in a grotesque manner, revealing the deranged man, but they continued to run. Finally reaching a cabin, they ducked inside. They were filled with fear, and their brothers felt that leaving the cabin would end in their deaths. What they found in the cabin made them regret their ignorance on legends, for in the main bedroom of the cabin was corpses, at least a hundred of them. Every animal they had seen that night was there, along with some larger bodies, some human bodies. It was then that the man burst into the room, except he was once more a wolf. In his deep voice, he snickered out, Welcome home. The following week, the authorities sent the cabin during their search for Jason and Alex. Both brothers' faces looked as if they were eaten by an animal of some sort. Six days later, a security camera several states over caught Alex filling up a car with gas. Several eyewitnesses also reported seeing the dead man, and on nearly all accounts he was seen smiling, a wide, toothy, unnatural grin. Well, no more faces for those two brothers, but at least the skin of Alex gets to live on. Like he's still living. I mean, he's not, but shh. Let's pretend. Skinwalkers, how amazing. But while the skinwalker walks around with Alex's face, let me give you this week's recommendation. And just because it's a big year-end kind of episode, doesn't mean I wouldn't still recommend something with that Christmas theme. So this week, I'm recommending the movie Jack Frost. But no, not that family-friendly one you may be thinking of. On his way to be executed, the vehicle containing a notorious serial killer, Jack Frost, collides with a hazardous chemical truck, turning Jack into a snow-covered mutant and unleashing him on the unsuspecting town of Snow Mountain, the snowman capital of the Midwest. Jack immediately takes advantage of his newfound freedom and blizzardly abilities to seek revenge on the bungling sheriff that accidentally ended his cross-country killing spree. On his way to the sheriff, Jack terrorizes a snowman-themed town and murders his residents in a variety of winterized ways. Can the residents of Snowmoton fight back against the psychopath snowman from hell? Or will they all end up in a snow-covered grave? Go to wherever you get your movies and check out Jack Frost. And now that I've given you this week's recommendation, let's get to the second half of my list. Our sixth story of the night is about a young girl who lost her best friend, Molly. Without her, she could feel herself getting more and more depressed and having a hard time hanging on. So she decided she needed to visit Molly's grave and talk with her best friend. But going to the cemetery did not turn out the way she expected. What happened? Did she survive? Or is she now joining her friend as worm food? Let's find out together as you listen to Amongst the Tombstones. I'm writing this because I know I'm not mad. But if I don't tell anyone about what happened, I may not be sane for long. I'm just going to start from two months ago. When Molly died and my life changed, nearly all of us have a friend we could truly rely on. One which knows how you feel and think without ever exchanging a word. 
a friend that no matter how bad things got, would stand beside you and smile to let you know that you're not alone. My friend was Molly. I knew something was wrong when Molly didn't turn up for our A-level classes and didn't answer any of my texts or calls for two days. My dad gave me a lift to Molly's house after school, but when we got there, it was closed off with police tape. The local paper's front lines read, Man beats daughter to death with wrench, then hangs himself. I was distraught. I didn't leave my room for three days. My life stopped, and I was instantly reduced to a curled-up ball on my bed, sobbing profusely. I knew Molly's dad slapped her around every so often. Whenever I spoke to her about it, she would always brush it off or ignore it. I never thought that bastard father of hers would ever cave her skull in with his work tools. Molly's mother died when she was very young, so her aunt came to arrange her funeral. She invited everyone in Molly's class to pay their respects. The service was beautiful, or as one could be at a funeral. Though it was a closed coffin funeral, Molly's aunt told everyone that she was wearing the dress she would have worn to prom that year. My heart broke again when I heard it. It was barely a month ago when we had gone and bought matching dresses. Molly was buried beside her mom in an old local cemetery. Her dad was buried in a different one not far away. After the funeral, I began losing interest in my studies, TV, music, and going out. I often missed school and had frequent calls about my lack of attendance. Molly was such a major part of my life, and now she's gone. I feel as if there is a void left which can never be filled. After a month of mainly living silently in my room and barely going to school, my mom came to my room and spoke to me. She convinced me that I needed to keep going on with my life, and that Molly would have wanted me to do so. With time, I began to study again. I even found the fountain pen Molly had lent me in the last class we had together. It brought a smile to my face to see it again. I felt the need to see my friend once more. I needed to tell her that I was doing fine, and that I miss her. On the way home from school one day, I bought a small bouquet of flowers and made my way to the cemetery. That's when I felt it. From the moment I walked through the gates of the cemetery, I felt a strange feeling, as if the warmth of my body was being drawn into my skin ever so slowly. I remembered feeling this slightly on the day of Molly's funeral, but I could have sworn it was the cold weather. As I walked along the gravel path to get to Molly's grave, the feeling intensified. I began to shiver and tremble as the heat was leached from my body. My breath missed it and my hands went numb. All I wanted now was just to lay my flowers on Molly's grave and leave. I looked about over the weathered and aged tombstones, but saw nobody else around. Yet I felt there was someone watching me, very, very closely. I could only describe it as the type of gaze a wild animal gives a human, studious and analyzing, searching for weaknesses. After many long seconds had passed, I reached Molly's grave. The flowers fell from my numb hands and my knees buckled. I fell face down on Molly's grave. All my strength abandoned me, and my vision blurred as I slipped from consciousness. The last thing I remember before blocking out was the strange scratch marks across Molly's tombstone and the shadow of a figure standing behind me. I don't know how long I was out, but I woke up in a dimly lit room, struggling to breathe, feeling colder than I'd ever been in my life. When my eyes adjusted, I let out a choked shriek. A slender creature with tight charcoal black skin straddled my chest with its claw-like hands coiled around my throat, barely allowing me to breathe. Drool fell 
from the corners of its enormous mouth. Filled with needle-like teeth as it stared deep into my eyes, with the large bloodshot eye in the center of its face. I thrashed and kicked, but the creature's grip only tightened, then spoke in its hissing and ghastly voice. Centuries I have languished in the shadows of burial grounds, feeding on the scraps of souls left in the corpses. But now, your entire soul will restore me. The creature began to squeeze harder on my throat, and I felt the blood in my head build up in pressure. I began to feel faint again, as the life slowly began to slip from me. Thinking quickly, I slid my hand into my pocket and pulled out a pen. I felt its shape in my fingers and knew it was a fountain pen that Molly had lent me. As fast as I could, I flicked off the lid with my thumb, and with whatever pitiful amount of strength I had left, I drove its tip into a monster's eye. The pointed tip sank through the gelatinous orb in the creature's head, causing it to throw itself back off me and spastically thrash around screeching. The long claw-like nails in the creature's elongated bony fingers sliced across my forearm, leaving four stinging gashes. My strength returned and my lungs filled with air once more. I quickly got to my feet and backed away from the monster writhing and flailing on the ground. I saw a coffin in the center of the tiny room, and behind it was a small door, slightly ajar, allowing a small band of light to illuminate the mausoleum. I bolted for it, running around the other side of the coffin, avoiding whatever the fuck that thing was, and shouldered the open door. Without looking back, I ran out of the mausoleum and found myself on the far side of the cemetery. I didn't waste any time. I wasn't feeling cold, nor was I feeling weak anymore. But I wasn't going to give that creature another chance to kill me. Clutching my blood-soaked arm, I sprinted for the gates, tears falling from my eyes as I ran. When I arrived home, Mom and Dad took me to the hospital that night to get my arm stitched up. They didn't believe me when I told them about what happened in the cemetery. I convinced my dad to search the mausoleum that I described to them. But when my dad and his friend went, they only found its door to be securely locked. I'm now frequently visiting a psychological therapist, as my parents are under the impression I deliberately harmed myself so I could deal with the depression of losing my best friend. At times I think they may be right, and that I did harm myself. I may have made an elaborate fantasy in my head to escape my depression, but when I wake almost every night trembling and drenched in cold sweat, to the same nightmare in which I'm being strangled by that terrifying thing I think otherwise I know I'm not mad but nobody believes a word I say poor creature just wanted a chance for life yet that horrible human being treated the creature like it didn't even matter you weren't even enjoying your life, human. You could have given it to someone who wanted it, who would enjoy it. Selfish. So, so selfish. Ugh. Humans. But for now, let's forget the greedy human and move to story number seven. This one, a myth from Latin America about a man in black wearing a big black hat. Stalking at night, looking for the worst of humanity, or sometimes looking for love. Many places in Latin America have stories about this black rider. So settle in and enjoy listening to Alison Brerron.
Nelson Brerán is about a character who lived in ancient times in different towns. He was an enigmatic man who dressed in black and wore a large hat of the same color. He rode a spirited black horse that was confused with the night. He did not speak to anyone, and he hurt no one. He appeared and disappeared as if by enchantment. The old man was found on the side of the road, and although he had already died, people continued to feel his presence. He is physically described as an older man with a large hat, well-dressed with a somber face, and an attitude of permanent observation. People who have seen him say that he is accompanied by two huge black dogs, held by thick chains. The night owls who have seen it, or to whom it has been introduced, say they see the figure that comes out on the road, makes them run and shouts at them, If I can reach you, I will put it on. He always goes after drunks, brawlers, night owls, and cheating and inveterate gamblers. He takes advantage of lonely places. On moonlit nights, it is easy to confuse it with the shadows cast by branches and bushes. He always arrives at night at full gallop, accompanied by a strong icy wind and quickly disappears. He was famous in Medellin in 1837 when he walked all the streets. He would appear four or five Fridays in a row, reappear a month or two later. It seemed that El Sombrerón was the horror of Medellin. There are also chronicles of his wanderings through southwestern towns, such as Andes, Bolivar, and Jardín, and through the towns on the banks of the San Juan and Baldido rivers, and other Colombian regions, such as Tolima, Huila, and east of Valle de Cauca. He is known as El Genete Negro, and is described in a very similar way to how he has been described here. In the southwest of Antioquia, he is also mentioned as the Horseman without Zamaros, and he is described with slight variations. They attribute different forms of presentation to him, the most frequent of which is that of a tall and stout man in mourning, ending in a skull adorned with a black hat and wide wings. Stories of this character are also heard in Guatemala and Mexico, although in Guatemala they describe him as a dwarf who serenades women and likes to braid their hair. One of the best-known legends about this character in Guatemalan culture, and it is also well-known in Aguadas. Caldas says, One night, El Sembrerón was walking in the neighborhood of La Antigua, Guatemala, when he saw a very beautiful girl with long hair and fell in love with her. He looked for her home and serenaded her over and over again, but she did not say anything to her parents about him. One day, she decided to stop eating to the point that she almost died, and that's when her mother realized it was because of El Sembrerón. She took her daughter to a convent, believing that she would be better there, but the girl continued without eating and one day, she woke up with a braid in her hair, made by the ghost. And that day, she died. Later at the wake, El Sombrerón appeared crying, and his tears were like crystals. He never forgets the girls he has loved. It is also said that he braids horses and mules. It is said that this ghost, apart from making young girls fall in love, likes to ride mules and horses from the farm stables at night, exhausting them. For this reason, the beasts during the day do not fulfill the tasks added to the fact that they become hostile towards the people, the peasants, and farmers. When they see this behavior, they look to see if El Sombrero has made braids in their hair. If so, the animal is no longer useful for tasks. One way to know if El Sombrero is doing his thing in farms and houses is to place, either near the balcony of a home or near the stables, a chair and freshly made pine table, along with brandy and a guitar on a moonlit night, and everyone must keep quiet. 
Only then would the guitar and the songs of Elson Bredon be heard. Elson Bredon is attracted to girls with long hair and big eyes. Therefore, when it is suspected that he's after a young woman, her hair must be cut so that Elson Bredon does not take the soul of the young woman. Be mindful of the man in black in the big black hat. Maybe you're a cheater or a brawler and he's coming for you. Maybe he just fell in love with you and there's nothing you can do. Either way, El Sombrero will find you. While you worry about the man in black and the other monsters from tonight's episode, let me begin story number eight by Jay Deshen about two monsters. These monsters are very different from each other but no less just as monstrous. Listen to this story about a man in the woods ready to do his monstrous shit. Stand in the woods tonight and enjoy listening to You Never Know What's Out There. I'm so damn good at this. Never a step out of place. Never an accidental twig snap or an unnatural rustle of leaves. They never have any idea that I'm watching. I'm a fucking stealth god. I can't believe how stupid some women are. They hear all the stories. This one goes missing. This one turns up murdered. They only find pieces of this other one. And so on. What's their solution? Not to stay out of the fucking woods. No. That would make far too much sense. No, they decide to charge straight in, but in pairs, like that will protect them. Just gives me more to hunt, you dumb bitches. I've been tracking these two sweet morsels for a while now. One is a cute little blonde thing with rosy pink skin and a button nose. She's gotta be at least 20, but she looks like she's 12. I love the way her sweet little ass cheeks dip out of the bottom of those tiny denim shorts. The other one is a dark goddess. Olive skin, brown hair, tits sticking out a mile, and quite the fiery little temper. They've been sniping at each other for hours, and their morale is low. Yeah, that was me. I nicked in while their backs were turned, stole their maps, and fucked up their compass. They have no fucking clue where they are, and I love it. The blonde one is starting to panic. The brunette wants to kick the shit out of her. It's funny as fuck to watch, but she better not. I want both of them, nice and intact for when I get my turn to play. A big part of this racket is the waiting. Sometimes you just have to sit tight, like I'm doing right now. Not much I can do until they've crawled inside their tent for the night. Sure, I keep myself on the move, just so they don't find me. But you do kind of run out of things to watch. You've seen one sweaty college girl piss in the woods. You've seen them all. The real fun comes in the middle of the night when they're passed out from bitching at each other. That's when I pop right into their tents and before they know it, they're mine. Sometimes I knife them right away. Other times I like to keep them alive, keep them lucid. Their screams turn me on. There they go. The fire's out now and they're crawling into the last place to let her sleep. I'll wait a few more hours, and then, what the fuck? What is that? It sounds like who or what the fuck? 
is stomping around at this hour. If it's some kind of bear, I'm fucked. It'll wake those bitches up. And then I'll have to wait a whole other day and night. I swear to God, sometimes I just... No, that's not a bear. That's not... What the fuck is it? It's standing on two legs. It looks like a man, but... Goddamn, that thing is big. I've never seen anything like it before. It's... It's eyes. It doesn't seem to know I'm here, but it sees the tent. It's not even stopping. Like that tent doesn't even matter. Fabric tears. The girls are awake. I can hear them screaming. That... Thing. It's roaring. Bellowing. It grabs the little blonde one and lifts her high in the air. She's kicking and flailing, but she's no match. It doesn't want her. The creature throws her back down. I hear her bones shatter, and she goes quiet. The brunette is stunned. She scrambles to her feet, but she's not fast enough. I watch, paralyzed, as it drags her off into the darkness. I can't see her anymore, but I can still hear her screams and cries for help. They start to change. I've heard screams like that. I can tell she's not being dragged anymore. I can tell she's being used. I'm shaking. I can't believe what I've seen. I'm never coming back here again. It's a shame that the bigger monster didn't see the smaller monster. What an experience that would have been. But it just goes to show you what I've been saying since I started this show. You humans are the real monsters. Now as I look at you with side-eye and shame, let me move us to our ninth story of the night, which is one of the most well-known creepypastas ever written, about an experiment that went horribly wrong in ways that no one could have predicted. Don't sleep. Don't let them make you sleep. And enjoy the Russian sleep experiment. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilet and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners, deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised, falsely, that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic events in their past. And the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternatively whispering to the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of their experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. 
The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume in a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lay flat on the floor, or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase and a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out amongst the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flush with the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them were in, life. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs to the ribcage. All the blood vessels in the organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber, and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives, if you count the ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him 
but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than 10 times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor when heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he bled out to the point where there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility, the two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even with the weight of a 200-pound soldier holding that wrist as well. It only took a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. The muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were barely torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed. He was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested, reluctantly, they try the surgery without anesthetic, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced, and they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, an ex-KGB agent instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, 
all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might. First left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwaves showed the same flatlines as the one who just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed, as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot trend. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So, nearly. Free. Now normally, I would be talking about how great it would be to be so nearly free, and how evil should win and blah blah blah. But I love my sleep, so let's not fuck with that. That is one of my favorite creepypastas, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. But now, it's time for the last story of the night. And for the end of this year-end episode, I picked one of mine. Yeah, yeah, I know, but shh. This one, about a phantom that hunts the most vulnerable among us. Straight out of the Newcastle Chronicles. Keep your eyes safe, and avoid the alleyways. And enjoy listening to this story about the evil, the twisted, the demented, Mr. Cindy. I remember yesterday. Hello there. My name is Jeremy Mitchell. I'm an 11-year-old boy from Northeast Philadelphia. Some crazy things have been going on lately. Coronavirus, social distancing, and having to wear masks. We've been pretty lucky though. No one from my family's gotten sick. But then yesterday happened. It was such a nice day outside. March came and brought us plenty of nice weather. We can't go to the playground or school or things like that. But as long as I stay away from people, my dad says I can ride my bike. I was so happy. Being allowed to go out for the first time in weeks and ride my bike for just a couple of hours felt like the best thing since Christmas. Which is when I got my new bike. Who would have thought it would have caused any problems? 
I rode all around the neighborhood without any problems. The sun was high in the air. Everything was whizzing by as I rode faster and faster. I don't know how long I was out there, but I started to get hungry and tired. So I took the turn and got back onto my street. And that's when I heard it, cutting through the traffic and the sound of my bike on Scalewind Avenue. The laughter, the giggling, like children hiding somewhere and watching, watching me. I heard it coming from an alleyway, about seven or eight houses from mine. I crossed the street to take a look. It was so odd, the sun being out and overhead, but the alley was so dark, no light at all. I stood a few feet away, peering into the darkness. Then, I saw a single pair of eyes, staring back at me, moving closer it seemed. Dirty fingers, with long, disgusting fingernails, appeared on either side of the alleyways. He, she, stepped out of the alley, barefoot and covered in filth, a long, stained pink nightgown, the only clothing. Matted hair hung down to her shoulders with thin, messy hairs on her chin and upper lip. The eyes are what did it. Wild, bloodshot. A deep green that almost pulled you in. I pulled my bike back and stepped away. The giggling continued until she raised her hand for silence and then reached out for me. Who are you? What do you want? I asked in a small, timid voice. The stranger answered, in a voice that I can't describe. Cindy. The name confused me, but I didn't want to ask any more questions. I just wanted to go home. I made a move to go and Mr. Cindy moved to block my path. The giggling started up again, but this time I could see them. A group of children with gray skin, like they were covered in ash and they were all missing their eyes. Come and join the other children. They would love to have a new friend. With us, you'll always be a child. You'll always have fun and laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> and with that, Mr. Cindy rushed towards me. I could smell the foul, hot stench of her breath as she got closer. I shut my eyes tight and curled into a ball on the ground waiting to feel those fingernails dig into my skin and drag me away. Jeremy! The voice of my father shouting, What are you doing? Get off the ground! Do not let your mother see that your brand new bike is laying on the dirty ground. I was so relieved, but so confused at the same time. Did you see it? Did you see Mr. Cindy? I asked my dad. See who? All I saw was you laying on the ground. But dad, there was this thing. It reached out to me. It reached out to drag me into the dark alley. My father and I both turned and looked into the bright and well-lit alleyway. I think maybe you were cooped up too long. Your imagination got the best of you, buddy. Come on, let's go home. The stores still don't have much. So we're going to have to order pizza and you can have ice cream later on. Just don't tell your mother any of this. She's crazy enough as it is. So me and my father made our way home. But I could swear. I could hear the faintest laughter coming from the alley. But maybe he was right. Maybe I just imagined the whole thing. 
It seemed so real. The rest of the night went on like planned. Pizza and ice cream. We watched Doolittle, which I liked. I don't think Dad liked it though. Then it was time to get a shower and get ready for bed. The weirdness of earlier was still in my mind, but I was more focused on getting to go back out on my bike. The parking lot by the old Toys R Us is empty and a perfect place to ride around and practice jumps on my bike. My dad started the usual goodnight ritual, which is always fun and loud. I thought I heard something else with it, but it quickly went away. We said our goodnights, and it didn't take long before I drifted off to sleep. When I woke up suddenly, my clock's little red numbers said 3.15am. I'm not sure why I woke up. But when I tried to go back to sleep, that's when I heard it. Mr. Cindy. And a dirty, disgusting hand clamped over my mouth. There she was, Mr. Cindy in my bed. And she started with my eyes. I remember yesterday, the day I died. Mr. Cindy claims another victim, another pair of eyes, another soul. I cannot wait to see what else she does as the Newcastle Chronicles go on and on. Maybe she'll set her sights on you or your children. Isn't that terrifying? Thank you for being here for this long-ass end-of-the-year episode, and I very much look forward to next week's Christmas episode. But now, I believe there's enough scares for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for more stories that are sure to keep you afraid during the day and awake at night. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the stories that I had for you tonight. And until next time. <laughs> Stay spooky.